uh, thank you for uh, the privilege of standing before you and, and being able to open uh, God's Word. Um, Eric called me about two weeks ago and said, I have a very rare opportunity and I need somebody to preach for me the last Sunday of the book of Revelation. Um, Eric, Eric was led to the Lord by a man who then discipled him through college and this man is getting older and uh, wanted Eric to join him on a kind of bike trip retreat time and uh, he really felt compelled that he needed to do this with his mentor and I think we've all benefited from the investment that that mentor made in the man and so uh, I said, well, I'll try to come up with something. And so here we are. <laughs> um, also, it's been one of the joys of our lives for Janie and, and myself to be a part of this church for uh, several decades. We've seen it morph so many times, but the one constant has been the center of Jesus Christ. If you're new to us today, if you're visiting, since around Easter... We have been walking through the book of Revelation. And today is the exclamation point. Today is the last chapter of the book. And I get the privilege of unpacking this with us. In preparing for this message, I got to thinking that there's, there's really uh, two kinds of people. Uh, let me describe them and you can figure out where you are in this. Uh, there's the kind of person like reading a book. One person picks up the book, starts at the first chapter. If by the third chapter they don't like it, close the book, get rid of it, never have to read it again. Second kind of person reads the, the uh, forward to the book, reads the introduction to the book, reads the title page of the book, and then reads every single chapter of the book to finish it. Which one are you? Uh, in terms of music, some people, and this would be more, most of the time me, go to a concert and just allow the music to happen. They just uh, go wherever the music takes them, lets the musician sort of control the experience, and we just take it all in. Other people study the musician, they, uh, they listen to the music beforehand. You may or may not know this, but in the next service, they will know this. They will go online and get the playlist of the previous concert to see what songs uh, these artists have been performing. And then they'll copy that and they'll follow along and listen, and if there's any kind of tweak to the playlist, it'll shock them, kind of like. Um, which one are you? Uh, last example, vacations. Some of us have all we can do to make the plane reservation and the hotel reservation and rent a car. And all we know is we're going to go and we're going to let it happen. 
I just want to sit by the pool. I want to read a book. I want to eat. You know, and we, and we just let the vacation happen. Others, and this would be my wife, vacations are a forced march. You get it down. What time are we leaving the house? Here's what we're going to do the first day. Here's where we're going to eat. This is what we're going to do. In reading through the book of Revelation, John is the latter. He is thinking this through. He sees this vision that so overwhelms him. I'm sure you've had this experience where you've just been captured by something. Uh, the sunset over the Rockies, uh, the sunrise at the ocean, um, a beautiful panorama. Uh, you've heard a, a musical score and it just lifted you. And then you go to your wife or your husband or your friend and you try to explain what just happened and words don't do it. You say it and when you're done saying it, you go, that didn't sound right. It was so much bigger than that. That's what's happening to John in, in this book. He's caught up in something that's almost beyond words. And, it, and it's cosmic. It's, it's dragons that eat children. It's seven-headed monsters. It's antichrists and bowls of judgment and horsemen and catastrophes and beings with eyes all over him. He's caught up at the limit of language as he's looking at what God has for us. That even our language can't totally grasp the goodness and the greatness of what lies before us. But let's put that in context. John was one of the 12 apostles. By the time he wrote this, he either watched or heard about all 11 of his friends dying, being executed. He's the last remaining one. And he lives with the recollections of his friends, now gone, paying the ultimate price for their faith. Then he looks at his church and he sees his church is assaulted from without. The Roman Empire does not make the church comfortable. They can confiscate property at any time. They can close the doors at any time. They can arrest you at any time and they can claim that you're a traitor because you're not giving Caesar what Caesar is due. You're giving it to somebody else. You're calling somebody else Lord. And in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord. So you could be executed. His church was being assaulted from without. His church was being assaulted from within. Bad thinking, false teaching, relational issues. Put people together, you're going to have problems. And here's a man who walked with Christ, and he's watching things crumble about him. And then, to make matters worse, he gets arrested and he's exiled to this island. If you watch Papillon, uh, an island prison 
You'd be sent to this island with no way to get off, and there you'd live the rest of your life. And there he is. What does he do with the world he lives in? How does he make sense out of that? Not so unlike us. How do we make sense out of the pain, the brokenness, the uh, scorn that we live in these days? How do you read the paper without your heart breaking? That's where John is. And what does he do? He goes to church. He goes to church. The first chapter says it was the Lord's day and he was praying at church. And he gets this dream, this vision that puts all the garbage and the pain and the brokenness that he experiences in this world, it puts it in perspective, this vision, this greatness, looking through what he sees to where he lives gives him hope, helps him see the end of the story, gives him motivation to move forward. Isn't that incredible? We get now to read the last chapter of the book of Revelation. It's the exclamation point, not just on the book of Revelation, but on the entire Bible. It's the culmination of a narrative arc that started in Genesis and ends up now with this vision in worship. So we're going to work our way through the passage. Um, I always worry a little bit about being read to and, and taking on big chunks, but let's let the Word speak to us, and then I'll make some comments along the way. I've asked uh, Jane to read for us, so you don't have to hear my voice continually. Then the angel showed me the water of life river, crystal bright. It flowed from the throne of God and the Lamb, right down the middle of the street. The tree of life was planted on each side of the river, producing 12 kinds of fruit, a ripe fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing the nations. Never again will anything be cursed. The throne of God and of the Lamb is at the center. His servants will offer God's service, worshiping. They'll look on his face, their foreheads mirroring God. Never again will there be any night. This uh, section is so filled with um, metaphor, allusions, references to things that the reader of this passage, the original readers, would spark on right away. We have to we have to work at understanding what's being referred to here. But the beauty of this passage, the very beginning of the last chapter of the Bible, is that it's echoing the very first chapter of the Bible. Think about this. In the first chapter, there's creation. At the end of Revelation, there's new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. In the first chapters, there's this beautiful garden where everything fits. In these last chapters, there's this beautiful city 
perfect in dimensions where everything fits. In the first chapters, God is with humanity face to face, walking in the garden. In these last chapters, God is at the very center of the city, and we relate to him face to face. In the first chapter, chapters, death enters humanity. In these last chapters, life, resurrected life, takes over. In the uh, first chapters, humans were expelled from the garden for their failure to obey and live in their place before God. In these last chapters, humans are restored, welcomed back. At the end of Genesis 3, it says that the tree of life that was in the garden is, was now protected by angels so humans couldn't get back to it. And so we continued to move east of Eden. And the farther east of Eden, we got the worst things got. In these last chapters, the tree of life is right in the middle of everything. And we're welcomed back into it. Did you notice it's sort of cosmic? The tree of life is on both sides of the river. I, I, how do you imagine that? You know, is it like a giant sequoia and the river runs through it, but it's, but it's got part of it on either side? Or is uh, John saying, what side of the river do you live on? Do you live on the west side of the river? There's life there. Do you live on the east side of the river? There's life there. Are you a little left of center in your life? There's life there. Are you a little right of center in your life? There's life there. There's something bigger that's going on. And then he makes this illusion. Uh, the tree of life bears fruit every month. My raspberry bushes bear fruit once a season. If you lived in an agrarian society, you lived for the harvest and you prayed that there was enough at the harvest to make it through to the next harvest. And John is saying, no more. This new city is fruitful. It's fertile. There's no need. You belong here. You fit here. Your needs will be met here. And then he, finally he says this tree of life is healing to the nations. Again, we hear this in 2019 and we go, yeah, oh, okay. But to the original readers, they would immediately flash on the promise to Abraham. Your people are going to be a blessing to the nations. And here at the end, the nations are blessed. They're welcomed in. Oh, John is just enraptured by this. His deepest longings, the misery that he lives in, is somehow so superseded by this vision. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Shut me up. The God and master of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants what must take place and soon. 
and tell them, yes, I'm on my way. Blessed be the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, saw all these things with my own eyes, heard them with my ears. Immediately when I heard and saw, I fell on my face to worship at the feet of the angel who laid it all out before me. He objected, no, you don't. I'm a servant just like you. Worship God. So John is so caught up in this. It's so ecstatic. It's so overwhelming. And then this angel's in front of him, and the angel is so majestic, he's tempted to worship the angel. That's how beautiful all of this is. And the angel says, worship God and God alone. And in that moment, John is not so unlike us. We, uh, we don't quite get our worship right. We, uh, the edges sort of get blurred. Worship becomes about the right music, or how good the sermon is, or how the elements in communion or baptism are distributed. And we get sidetracked, just as John got sidetracked. And the angel reminds him, God is the center of worship. If you walk out these doors today and you didn't hear from God, you didn't sense something from God, you didn't offer something to God, you missed worship. You missed what this is about. And, and John, in a sense, is reminding us this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not called the revelation of the end of the world. The purpose of the book is not to figure out what all these numbers mean. It's not to figure out who the dragon is or who the Antichrist is. It's not to figure out when the last days are. It's meant to show us that no matter what is going on, God never says, oops, never says oops. He's, he controls the arc of history like a chess master playing a game of chess against me. I'm free to move my pieces around the board. Be reading just so I, don't I guarantee you, I will be checkmated. That's what... Christ is a work, free to move the pieces. Nation can do what nation will do. People can do what people can do. We will be checkmated. One day, one day, God in Jesus Christ will bring justice, will restore what's been broken. John sees this in worship. The next passage. Yes, I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. I'm bringing my payroll with me. I'll pay all people in full for their life's work. I'm A to Z, the first and the final, beginning and conclusion. How blessed are those who wash their robes. The tree of life is theirs for good, and they'll walk through the gates to the city. But outside for good are the filthy curs, 
sorcerers, fornicators, murderers, idolaters, all who love and live lies. That was our call to worship today, this section of the last chapter. Um, as I was reading this, do you know what I thought? I heard a song in my head. It was a Christmas carol. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. That's what's going on here. The hopes of something better, where justice is restored, where I belong and I fit, and beauty abounds, is the reality of what we're missing. That vision is the really real, the truly true, even if we're not experiencing it, just as John may not have been experiencing it. And the fears. You can miss it. You can miss Christ like you miss your plane. You can miss him. You can get caught up in the envelope instead of the letter that's in the envelope. You can get caught up in appearances and miss the substance. And there's a group of people that don't make it, that don't get in. C.S. Lewis would say, you know, the door to hell locks from the inside. I've often thought, if, if Jesus wasn't worth my life right now, if I didn't find him valuable enough to love him, to listen to him, to follow him, to obey him in this life, if all of that seemed childish, ridiculous, unintellectual, foolish, intolerant, judgmental, if I refused it in this life, for me, wouldn't hell be living with God for eternity? I get the very thing I don't want. I don't want them. And I think God in his love opens the door and says, you get what you want. You want life on your own? Go get it. Go get them. It's not how you were designed. But you closed the door. John isn't writing this to scare us. He's writing this to compel us in. Let's uh, read the last section. I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to these things for the churches. I'm the root and the branch of David, the bright morning star. Come, say the spirit and the bride. Whoever hears, echo, come. Is anyone thirsty? Come. All who will, come and drink. Drink freely of the water of life. He who testifies to all these things says it again. I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. Yes, get here, Master Jesus. The grace of the Master Jesus will be with all of you. Oh, yes. And thus ends the Bible. The Bible ends with a blessing, not a curse, not a, so there, we win, you lose. No, it says the grace 
undeserved love and affection, undeserved welcoming, the grace of the Master Jesus be with whom? With you all. Oh, yes. May this be true. Revelation, this vision, though, begs the question. John has to go back into his world. This isn't just about the future that we can pie in the sky by and by. Oh, yeah, one day I'm going to sit on a cloud and play a harp. Won't that be wonderful? No, it's a vision that's meant to inform the present. It's meant to inform who we are, how we live, what we do. That to be gentle, to be humble, to be forgiving, to be sensitive, to be gracious, to be merciful, to be loving, it's not out of fashion. That's what we were made for. And with this vision in mind, uh, Stephen Covey wrote a book, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. He studied highly successful people, and he came out with seven things they do that help them be successful. And one of them was, begin with the end in mind. That's what John's doing. He sees the end. He can go back to the present and live his life differently. You see the nouns, the titles that are used of God and Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the bright morning star. The sunrise is about to happen when you see the morning star. Something's about to happen. He's the root of Jesse, the son of David, the long ago promised one. He's the creator and the recreator. He's the beginning and the end. He's the lamb that was slain. We lose that image. Whenever I read that image, I think he was the puppy that was slain. Now that speaks to me more. God is a puppy? Those are the nouns. But look at the verbs. What does he do? God creates. He recreates. He saves. He rescues. He restores. He controls the arc of history. He controls. He's sovereign in some sort of way that affirms our ability to do what we do, he still checkmates us. And he retells. Now, I'll end with this story. We all have our vacation from hell. It was the camping trip that you planned, that you took the family on, and it rained the entire time. Your tent got flooded. You ended up, the five of you, in your little Toyota Camry, sleeping the night in your car. You tried to cook breakfast the next morning. All the wood was wet. You ended up driving into the closest town, eating at a greasy spoon and driving home. In the midst of that happening, 
you were miserable. You were leaking steam all over the place. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't how it should be. But now, years later, how does your family talk about that trip? Dad, remember when it rained all over us and we got soaking wet? Remember how mad you got? Oh my gosh, that was incredible. And remember the breakfast we had? Oh, that greasy spoon. You kept saying you don't buy food here, you rent it. And sure enough, that's what happened. And you laugh at it. And it becomes a bonding point for your family. Jesus is retelling our stories. Could it be that one day we will talk about life the way families talk about that vacation? Some of you know this. Um, and I, this passage hits home for me. Uh, for the last several years, my wife has been battling stage four cancer. We live in hell. And in the midst of it, this chapter holds out hope. Something more than just wishful thinking. This provides the encouragement, the motivation, to run the race, no matter what. My wife's battle has been heroic. What she has gone through, I can't imagine myself going through. And like John and his church, her world, my world, is a mess of contradictions and things we don't understand. Ah. But beyond that, could there possibly be a place to stand to look back on all of this and see, blessed be the name of God. And so we wait, not like prisoners awaiting their inevitable execution, but we wait as children on Christmas Eve night just going crazy for Christmas morning. Oh Lord, thank you that you hold in front of us the beauty, the justice, the love and belongingness of our future. No more sickness, no more death. The curse has been abandoned. Oh, Lord, make it so. Thank you for the promise that you're on your way. May we be found ready when you get here. Help us to be those people who are faithful in the midst of all that works against us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.